Um, today, we're going to look at the next section of the book of Ruth. And I know we've been going through this for a little while. And so what I'd like to do is just give you a quick refresher. Maybe today's your first day and you don't know where we're at in the story. Or maybe if you're like me, you've slept since then and it's a little bit fuzzy. So here's a quick review of sort of previously on Lost for the book of Ruth. So the book of Ruth, chapter 1, begins like this. It talks about what happens in their time period, in their setting, in their context. And it starts out in the days when the judges ruled. And if you remember that first sermon, we talked about how dark and difficult it was. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And then it tells us there was a famine in the land, naturally, because the people are disobeying and breaking their covenant uh, with God. And as a result, he's disciplining them. And so a family from Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. They switched teams. They changed allegiances. They went from the land of Yahweh to the land of Chemosh. And the husband and both of the sons died as a result. Both Elimelech, Malin, and Kilian died. And so this woman by the name of Naomi is left with nothing but her daughters-in-law, Ruth and her sister or her sister-in-law. And then what happens is Naomi says, okay, ladies, you know, your husbands are died. There's no children. There's no reason for you to stay with me. I'm going back home to my only hope of survival, basically begging off the streets or living off the land or whatever I can do. You go back to your uh, parents and your family and see if things will turn around for you there. And of course, Orpah, the one sister says, sure, good idea, good plan. See you later. Thanks, mother-in-law. It's been great. But... Uh, we're done. Ruth, on the other hand, clings to her mother-in-law. And so in verse 19 of chapter 1, it says this, Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, and the whole town was astir because of them. Imagine a little town where um, word spreads quickly and gossip abounds, and these two people come back, one a Moabitess and the other a new widow. And the women were all abuzz, chatty, chatty, chatty. And they said, is this Naomi? And Naomi said to them in very stern and concrete way, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. For the Lord, for call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now pay attention to this next sentence because it's coming back today. It says, I went away full And she's referring to having her husband and her sons. And the Lord has brought me back. Here's a big word here. Empty. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And so now as we get to chapter 3, what ends up happening is people are trying to ask and answer the question, empty or full, which one is it? Which way is this story headed? There's been great catastrophe at the beginning. There's this middle section, and now we're coming to the resolution. One way or another, it's either going to go very poorly or it's going to get way, way better. And so the question then for Naomi is, am I empty or full? Am I lacking or am I satisfied? Which way is my life headed? Now, I think if we push pause there and stop as we listen to the words of Naomi, if we turn the page or reflect those questions back on us, we could ask very similar questions. 
No doubt many of us have been down a long road, stuff has happened, and we could be at a point where we're asking the question, okay, so which way is this thing headed? Like it could go one way or it could go the other. Is it going up or is it going down? Am I full or am I empty? Which way will my life go? Ruth chapter 3 is going to help Naomi and Ruth answer that question. And it's going to help us answer that question today as well. In Ruth chapter 3, what's happened is Ruth and Naomi have returned to Bethlehem and Judah. Ruth has gone out to glean because they have nothing to eat and no money to buy food with. And as it turns out, if you remember this phrase, it just so happened. She goes out and lo and behold, of all the people she could have run into... It happens to be a distant relative, the long-lost rich uncle, by the name of Elimelech. This is a distant relative of her mother-in-law, so Ruth is not related to Elimelech. It's her mother who is, and he is what's considered a kinsman redeemer. Someone in their family, given the responsibility of caring for widows in the event that they have no other way to provide for themselves. It's his job to marry the widow and to produce an heir. And as a result, the family line continues and the inheritance that that child was to receive uh, is given to them and their name continues to be spoken throughout the land of Israel. So it just so happens that Ruth and Naomi land in this perfect place, meeting the perfect person at the perfect time. And again we ask, I wonder which way this thing is going to go. Now there are hints here already, but if you're Ruth or you're in Naomi, you're in the story, there's still a lot of questions left unanswered. I was tempted to call this sermon Hints of Happiness, to sort of push us in the direction to see which way it'll go. But I think it's better to use the actual words full and empty and see how those play out. Today's text. So be watching for those words as I read. I'm going to read to you Ruth chapter 3. And what I'm going to do, I want to just give you a heads up on this. I'm going to read this text, but I'm going to read it a little bit artistically or interpretively. I'm going to add some, as they say in India, a little bit of masala. This is a spice or a sauce that's been added to this meal, this entree. And the purpose is not for me to play fast and loose with the text, which I'm not. But what's happened is I've had seminary level courses and studied and taught this thing a lot. So there's a lot here that I'm not going to necessarily explain to you this morning, but I'm going to read that into the text. And if you have more questions about it, you can go back later to one of my teaching seminars, either in person or online, and watch as I take apart some of these um, Hebrew words and dissect it a bit deeper. But today, I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to, you know, blast through it. But along the way, I'll be adding a little bit more flavor to the text as we read. Does that make sense? Okay, so... Here we go, Ruth chapter 3. It says this. They're back in Bethlehem and and Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, What a nice mother-in-law, by the way. Isn't this every mother-in-law's job? My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? In other words, honey, wouldn't you like mom to help you find a husband? Isn't that something you would enjoy, ladies, for your mother-in-law to help you find your next man? 
Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Look, there he is, winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And by the way, Ruth, you stink. You've been working out in the fields for a long time. You're hot and sweaty and you haven't had a bath. And if you want to attract a man, there's something you need to do. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on some perfume. Put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't make a big scene. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Ladies, this is good advice. Amen? Wait till the man has a full stomach. Give him a chance to transition a little bit, and then he'll be ready to talk. But he's probably not ready as soon as he walks in the door. He might be grumpy, hot, tired, hungry. Not the best time to have a conversation. Slow it down, give him a chance, and when he's all full and happy, then you chat. But, uh, when he lies down, observe, do it subtly, just notice the place where he is lying. Now, why is he lying down next to the grain? Well, think about, it was the days when the judges rules. Does anyone remember what Samson did with a bunch of foxes to his enemies, the Philistine, during the time of the harvest? He burnt their fields down. This is very common for agrarian society, for one group of people to attack another. One of the ways you do so is you destroy their crops. So this guy is not going to go home with his money sitting on the table. He's going to sit there and guard it all night long. Everybody knows that. Protect the bread basket. So he lies down and he, and, sh- and she says, observe the place where he lies. Now do this really weird thing that we don't understand our culture, but it's totally appropriate for them. Go and uncover his feet and lay down. And then he'll tell you what to do. What this does is essentially she's saying propose to this fellow and do it subtly so that if he rejects you, you're not embarrassed and he's not embarrassed. When you take that corner of the sheet off, if he spreads it over you, that means he accepts your proposal and he's going to provide a covering, a sanctuary, and a shelter for you from this point forward. It's like in our world, if we say something like, a couple tied the knot, you know, they're bound together. In this world, it was the covering goes over you, so you have sanctuary. If he wants to reject her, he just rolls over. And doesn't cover up. And then she knows she's left out in the cold. Literally. So, Ruth replied, Everything you say, I will do. A very bold and gutsy move. So, Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, key peace, and his heart was merry, he went to lay down at the end of the heap of grain. And Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, his feet are getting cold. And he's startled and he turns over and is like, What is this? Behold, a woman at my feet? And Boaz said, Who are you? This is a key question to Ruth and as Christians, it's really a key question to us too. This identity issue is a big piece. Remember through the whole book, it's been Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitist who came back from Moab. I mean, over and over the narrative, the author is trying to say, look, she's bad. But Ruth is being asked now, who really are you, Ruth? 
What is your true identity? You've converted from Kamash to Yahweh. You've left everything and followed after this God. You're fully committed. So who are you now? That's who you were before. Who are you now? Church, that's who you were before. Who are you now? And Ruth answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. When Christ asks you, who are you? This needs to be your answer. When he says, well, yeah, but I was a Moabite. No, no, no. Who are you? Are you coming to him to make him your husband and let him cover you and be your redeemer? Are you going to stay in that identity that you were in before? Ruth answered, I am your servant. We answered, Jesus, we are your servant. Cover us and be our redeemer. Now, just a little side note. This is entirely appropriate. You can see how I'm trying to push towards the decency of this. Some liberal commentators will say this was a seduction. It was in the middle of the night. But what they fail to recognize is that this is the threshing floor in the middle of the harvest season. So I have pictures of it even today. Entire families gather around. This is a big group camp out in one spot. Not exactly the place to make a fancy move. She would be totally embarrassed and humiliated if she tried. Everybody's there. Kids, mom, dad. It's a big group thing. It's not private. This is not indecent. This is totally culturally appropriate. And that's why Boaz responds this way. In verse 10, he says, Aha, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness, this thing which you just did, proposing to me, greater than the first, that is the one staying with your mother-in-law. You've not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. In other words, Boaz thinks she could have, that she was still very attractive, and that he, she is doing him a favor by proposing. In other words, young lady, you are one good-looking little girl, and I am impressed that you're talking to me. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that goes way beyond looks, that in fact you are a woman of noble or worthy character. You've already proved your selflessness, your dedication, your trustworthiness, your reliability, your entrepreneurial spirit, your hard work. You are one that even if you weren't so attractive, any man in his right mind should marry. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet, listen to this and hear Jesus in it as well. There is a redeemer nearer than I. There is a redeemer that is near to you. If you will call on him, there is a redeemer. Remain here tonight and in the morning he will redeem you. Good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as surely as the Lord lives, which is as sure as it gets, there is nothing more sure than this. I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize anyone else. And Boaz, not wanting her to be accused of anything, says, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And Boaz says, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So Ruth held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. This is about as much as one woman could carry. 
and he sent her to the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law, after devising this great plan to propose to the man, is sitting there like the young lady after her first date or the big night at the prom, chomping at her nails and can't wait for her daughter to come home. Her mother-in-law says, how did it go? Tell me all about it. I want to hear the whole thing. And then... Um, she actually, in this, in this version, it says, how did it fare? But depending on your translation, it says, in the original language, who are you, my daughter? Again, the same identity question. And the question here is, are you the new Mrs. Boaz? Is your name still Ruth, the wife of Elimelech? Or did it just change overnight? Who are you, my daughter? And Ruth told her the whole story, all that Boaz had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back. What? What? Empty. You must not go back empty. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but now I am empty. Wait a minute. Are you really empty? Are you sure, Naomi? Because look, there's this Moabite daughter-in-law. And now she has six measures of barley. And all of a sudden, you're in front of a kinsman redeemer who happens to be a long-lost rich uncle. What do you think? Are you sure you're empty? Because this is starting to look a little bit different to me, Naomi. Why don't you ask yourself that question one more time? Are you full or are you empty? Church, are we full or are we empty? I know how we feel. And I know our experiences are real, and I know our bodies hurt, and our wallets grow thin, and our tummies grow wide. (laughs) That's the way it works. But the reality is this, the same question that's being asked to Naomi and Ruth is being asked to us as well. Are we full, or are we empty? Yes, there's hard times. Yes, there's things we don't like. Yes, our feelings are real. Stuff hurts, and we don't like it, and it ain't easy. That's not the question. The question is, are we full or are we empty? There are two things that, in particular that assure Ruth and Naomi that they are not empty. And so the way in which we'll walk through these next 12 minutes is this. We'll say, what assurance does Boaz give Ruth and what assurance does God give us? What assurance does Boaz give Ruth and what assurance does God give us? Now the assurance that Boaz gives Ruth are two things. The first of which is his promise. He promises her something. I tried to make that pop a little, but look again at verse 13 of chapter 2. Ruth, sorry, chapter 3. Ruth 2.13 says this. Remain here tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. There's another guy who has a chance. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So the first thing that, the first thing he gives Ruth is a promise. He gives her his word. 
Now, this week, uh, my boys are getting into different things as boys do, and one of them's into uh, playing cards, whether it's baseball or basketball or football, and they get all excited about certain characters or persons, and they're like, ooh, ooh, my friend told me he's going to give me this one if I bring this one and I bring that, and he's so excited he's going to bed, just, you know, I'm like, hold on, hold on, he told you what? Oh, he's got a Babe Ruth card, really? Okay. Well, hmm. Don't get your hopes up. (laughs) There's a good chance he's not quite accurate or maybe saying a little bit more than he should. Has this friend ever come through for you before? What are they like? Are they trustworthy? Tell me about their character. Do they sometimes say things that are maybe a little bit more than they can actually follow through with? And what you learn as an adult is there's a lot of people who make commitments like that, right? Like, oh yeah, man, it's great. Okay, yeah, it sounds good. And you show up and they're like, where are they? What happened? It's great. It sounds good. Uh, oh man, sorry, I missed it. You know, da 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 da. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then there's those other people who are like, they don't say anything, but if they do, they mean it and they follow through. And if they don't, you know, they probably died. That's the type of person that Boaz is. That's what his character is like. Here's a noble man of worthy character whose word is his word, his yes is his yes, his no is his no. It may not be fancy, but you know he's going to follow through. You see, the word, the person's word or their promise is a reflection of their character. It is a reflection of their character. And so when Boaz gives this promise, Naomi knows at the end of the story, oh, he's, he is not going to rest until he does. This is the type of guy who says, if he gives you his word, his word is as good as gold. You don't need a contract. You don't need a signature. You don't need anything else. You can go to sleep and totally forget about it. And he'll be waiting for you tomorrow morning on the front door. That's Boaz. His word is good. He is a man of noble character. And so, the first thing he gives her is a promise. Now, that would be enough. I mean, if you know somebody like that, that's enough of an assurance. That'll get you through. If you know anyone like that, you're like, yep, got it. Not even going to think about it or worry about it. But he gives her something more. He gives her a down payment or a deposit. In in chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, he says, hey, bring the garment over. She held it out. He measures out six measures of barley. And he put it on her and she went back into the city. And verse 16 says, she went and came to her mother-in-law and her mother's asking, how did you fare? And she tells her everything and says, look, not only did he make me this promise, but he gave me this deposit. Look, he gave me six measures of barley and says, do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So he is promised, but he is not only promised, he's made a down payment as well. He's given her something that she can look at and go to, even though this thing is not resolved. Understand, this is chapter 3. The full resolution is not until chapter 4. Do you see where I'm going with this? Here's this redemptive process that is in, in process. There is a promise and a down payment, but it's not fully resolved. We know... Because we've read chapter 4, what's going to happen to Ruth? You know, Naomi tells her, wait, lie, don't worry, it's going to... And we know. We can sort of look at this and say, is she full or empty? Well, she's definitely full. Which way is this thing headed? Clearly towards redemption. Boaz is going to follow through. She's got a deposit. There's no question about this. We're not even worried. But this is not resolved for Ruth yet. There's still an opportunity for this other kinsman redeemer to redeem her. And he might be a total jerk. 
For all we know, he could beat his other wives and be hateful and cruel towards women and children. She doesn't know. All she knows is there's two guys, the other guy and Boaz. And Boaz is a good guy and he's promised to follow through, but he's so noble, he's going to give the other guy first dibs. How many of you do that on prom night and say, hey, there's this beautiful young lady and she'll go to the dance with me, but I think she likes my best friend, so I'll ask him if he wants to ask her first. Nobody does that. Not real guys. They're like, kabam, get out of the way, man. She's mine. Boaz is so noble. He promises, he makes a deposit, and we clearly see which way this thing is headed. But when we transition and we change it and we look through that lens at our own lives, we don't have chapter four. I mean, we do, but we don't. We don't know the specific outcome of our lives, but we do have Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. And so while our redemption has not been fully realized or processed yet, we can still ask ourselves the question, are we empty or full? Which way is this thing headed? And guess what we have? The same thing as Ruth. His word and a deposit. We have his word and we have a deposit. And look, just like Boaz, the word is only as good as the giver. If this is a capricious, mean, change his mind sort of deity, then we can't count on his promise. But this is one who is everlasting, faithful from generation to generation. Then we know that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We have his word, we have his promise, and we can count on that more than the sun coming up tomorrow morning. We have Christ's word, his promise that he will redeem us. And not only that, but we got a deposit too. Hey, wait a minute. Six measures of barley? No. But we do have a deposit. We have a down payment. We actually have God's down payment of our redemption living in us. We have a payment from God. Now, you know, when you make a big deposit or a big investment, you're not going to let it sit there on the table. If you pour a ton of money or a ton of effort into something, there's no way you're going to turn away and walk away from that. That's why people want that deposit. And so it can't be easily abandoned. It'll be expensive and costly to you. How costly is it to God to redeem us? He spent the blood of his own son to make that payment. He is not going to walk away from that. No way. No matter how bad we messed up, he paid way too much to let us get away. And as a result, he puts down this down payment and this deposit. And look what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Oh, we now are becoming like the children of Ruth and Boaz, having been predestined to the purpose of him who works all things, even the bad stuff, according to the counsel of his will. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard his word, when you received his promise, when you heard him say, I will redeem the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, then you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the deposit, the down payment of our inheritance until we require the possession of it. If you have that deposit, if you have the Holy Spirit of God living in your life, God the Father is not going to walk away from you. That Holy Spirit is part of Him. 
This is how we become partakers in the divine nature and begin to assume all the new covenant benefits that God gives to us. Is that part, even a person of the Trinity, not part because he's whole, but a person of the Trinity is inside of us. We walk around with that down payment in our pocket. You don't want to carry too much cash in your wallet because you may not lose it, but you carry the Holy Spirit of God in you and you can't. That money, that deposit is in you. And as a result, you get all these crazy benefits. I'm going to blast through them really fast. But what you can do is you can just download these slides later from the internet. We leave them up there for you and your benefit. But here's the big ones. These are categories and there's a bunch of small ones under that. But here's the big one. When you get redeemed by Jesus, the same thing that, that Ruth and Boaz experience, you experience as well. Ruth is accepted. Boaz goes to be with her. And as a result, her situation improves. When you come to Christ and he redeems you, you are accepted by him. His presence is with you and you personally improve. You get his acceptance, his presence and personal improvement. I'm just going to flip through these real fast, but I'll show you what they look like. His acceptance is this. When God accepts you, for him to accept you, he has to forgive your sins. Like he doesn't accept sin. He can't. That's not possible for God. He's perfect, holy, righteous, and just. Sin cannot be part of him. And so through Jesus, he forgives it. And he also gives you then a new birth. And that new birth is into a new life. And that new life we call eternal life. Most people think eternal means like lasting for a long time. But it actually is a quality of life. It is in this life you experience the quality of the next. That you have an eternal quality of life. That your values, your understanding, your way of operating is totally different than the people who have a temporal way of life. You give because you know there's a future reward. You don't hoard it to yourself. You look to the future with eagerness and hope and expectation. You have joy and forgiveness of sins because you have an eternal quality of life. That, that is a different life and you get that life now. The duration, yes, is forever, but you begin to experience that quality in the moment now. You get the new life and adoption as sons and daughters. Now I was looking at this this morning. Like how can we remember this? It's going to be hard. Just remember the acceptance, the presence, and the personal improvement. But if you want to remember this, the one I came up with is FAN. F-A-N. There's an acronym. You can take it home and make better ones. But FAN is forgiveness, adoption, and then new. New birth, new life. So when you're in Jesus, you become one of his fans. So, you also get his presence. His presence is um, experiencing the goodness. What, what happens when you do that is you experience his goodness via his abiding presence now. And so, in that presence, when God comes to dwell with you, you get all these other things. You get comfort, mercy, joy, wisdom, guidance. You're strengthened by God's power. You receive peace. And you become partakers in the divine nature. These are things that are important because when you pray, this is what you should ask for. Most of our lives, we're asking for other things that we think will give us this. Give me more money so I can have more peace. Give me a better health so I can have better joy. Give me 
better intellect so I can have more whatever. But the reality is God promises us these things, not by means of other stuff, but these things directly. And so you can just ask for them. When you ask for these things, you get these things. When you ask God for wisdom, you get wisdom. When you ask him for mercy, you get mercy. When you ask him for joy, you get joy. When you ask him for peace, you get peace. But if you ask him for other things, solutions to your temporary problems, you may not get those. And if those... If your peace is dependent upon those solutions, you'll never have peace. But when you just go straight to the outcome, the intended outcome, and you say, Lord, give me that, he will. These are the things that God promises you. If you want your prayer to be effective, if you want him to hear you and answer you, this is what you should pray. These are new covenant benefits and promises. If it's outside the covenant and the promises, why would we pray that? Why would he give it? It's like my kids come to me and say, hey, dad, can I have a million bucks? I'm like, ha, (laughs) you're right. I'll give you a hug. I'm not going to give you a million dollars. Your inheritance, whatever it may be, not a million, is going to be a long way from now. Hey, guess what, Christian? You're asking God for a million dollars right now. That's the wrong thing. He's not saying to you, I'm going to give you a million dollars right now. He's saying, I'm going to give you peace and I'm going to give you joy and I've secured an inheritance for you, but that's in the future. What you get right now is that eternal quality of life that comes with these things. Comfort, mercy, peace, wisdom, joy, guidance, power, etc. Those are the things you can ask for now. Don't bother asking for the things you don't get till later. There's no sense in that. That's an argument you don't need to have. So, his... Acceptance, his presence, and then personal improvement. God does want to make us holy. Here are some of the things he promises to you. Help and victory over temptation. Christ to be our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, freedom, just like you heard about in a few minutes ago with those dancers and their song. Power, love, and a sound mind. These are the new covenant benefits. These are the promises that God gives us. So we have to ask ourselves that question one more time. Are we full? Are we empty? Are we full? Are we empty? And when I go through that sheet, I say we're full. It's not about is the glass half empty or half full. It's one or the other. And for us, it is all full. Ruth and Naomi are full. They have a redeemer. We, the church, are full. We have a redeemer. Ruth and Naomi have a promise and a deposit. We, the church, have a promise and a deposit. We are full and on our way to redemption. God's promise, his word is his word, and it will be made true, and his deposit are secure. Therefore, our success is a guarantee. In other words, what am I trying to say through the sermon? Something I like to say a lot. I think you've heard it already. Jesus wins. At the end of the day, Jesus wins. And we're on his team. And that's why it's a big deal to have him with us. Because if his presence is with us, then we get all the benefits of him. Jesus wins. We have a redeemer. We have a deposit. And we have an inheritance. And that is a guarantee. Father, we praise you and thank you. Thank you for Jesus, our Redeemer, the blessed inheritance and promise that we have. Lord, we pray that you would help us to grab those benefits, to seize them tightly, to hold on to them with all of our might, to claim them now and enjoy them every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.